Welcome everybody to another episode of Beyond Psychedelics. Really excited to have a conversation today with Dr. Curran. Today, we're going to be diving specifically around the importance of tracking data and understanding how this can support you as a medical provider in developing your business and more importantly, also providing better care for patients. Dr. Curran, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Subs. I, I appreciate being here. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about psychedelics, neuromodulation, it's such a vast field of, of, of treatment modalities that have a lot of, of research behind these treatments that are telling us what they're doing, how effective they are. But as time goes on, what we're seeing is providers and, and clinics and researchers are starting to get better, better data, better understanding as to where the industry is going. And I think for treatment outcomes for patients overall, we're getting a better idea of how this stuff works and, and what the precedent should be. So it's a really exciting time. Agreed, agreed. And especially with something that is so new. I mean, these these modalities that are right now transforming the way mental health treatment, it's so key to be able to inform the consumer. Because remember, if you're listening right now, and, and you'll more than likely already know this, that a lot of people out there right now don't know anything, at least at scale, as to what TMS is, what ketamine can do. And in the uh, the, the not-so-distant future, all the other psychedelics that are also coming on board. So- 100%. Dr. Curran, with, with your background, having run TMS clinics and understanding what the field is like, how do you see the role of tracking data in the mental health space impacting patient success rates? In, in our clinic, you know, we were, we were very fortunate to be able to have real-time values and metrics in front of our eyes, um, not just the patients walking out feeling better, right? You know, there's a visual understanding of what's going on, but the importance of being able to track what these outcomes look like, why they are the way they are, why we're having a partial response to treatment, why patients are benefiting with some sort of modality of intervention post-treatment if they're using some sort of assisted psychotherapy, integrative counseling, what that's telling us. So you can kind of get specific into, hey, this works with this really well. And that's something that I think we we are starting to realize more and more. Um, but to answer your question, Sebastian, I, I think you know, when mental health practices and healthcare, you know, the healthcare community overall, the more we engage in research, I think what we're doing is we're advancing the overall knowledge. You know, it expands our understanding um, of what these conditions are, the causes of some of these conditions, the efficacy of some of these treatments. And it allows us as mental health professionals to, you know, stay up to date with the latest developments and incorporate evidence-based practices into their work. Um, one thing I will say is that, you know, it definitely helped us improve treatment outcomes. We got better at what we did. You know, we knew that, hey, if we did our maintenance schedules as such, and I'll talk about TMS specifically just to kind of dive into that, we, you know, tapered our patients' treatments towards the end of treatment. But we were told by by certain organizations that, hey, you don't want to taper. Just have the patients do treatment and call it a day. You know, go back to back to back to back. Let's just say we were told that by a device manufacturer. Now, Here's an issue I ran into. My data spoke differently. That if I tapered or sequestered my treatments out, the outcomes were so much better. The durability of the response to treatment was so much better. And now we're tailoring this, this, this intervention or this treatment to what we see. And we're also identifying certain risk factors and prevention strategies here as well. Because if we didn't taper, we didn't see the response rates that we had. If we didn't use the tapering of the treatments, we would not see the durability of some of the, the responses our patients achieved. So these things play a big role in, uh, in, in this process. Um, and then lastly, you know, just to, just to kind of touch on why research is so important, it's an informing 
it's informing the public on public policy and healthcare. You know, we are advocates as mental health providers. You and I, Sebastian, we're advocates in this conversation. So if we're not using the data proactively, if we're not telling the industry what we're saying, then we're just kind of wasting the the metrics that are in front of us. And this is valuable time-consumed, energy-consumed uh, uh, activities that we've put all this effort into. And for professional growth and development, this is what we should be doing as a large-scale industry. So it's extremely important. Absolutely. And I love what you're pointing to because here we are as pioneers in this emerging mental health space and psychedelic-assisted therapy, which is prone to get more and more popular as time goes on. It right. is our responsibility. It's our duty to be able to give the feedback, to be able to do the actual um, research and be able to share this with the community at scale. Because again, right, right now, the, the the lack of education has people holding off. So if somebody that's never heard of TMS, for example, understands the benefit of it, they no longer correlated with ECT and now see that there's some data that shows, wow, most people are actually getting some long-term results with this. Okay, I'm, I'm jumping on board. Which is, again, this idea of bringing a holistic approach to being able to provide a consumer the right. understanding. Right. You also talk about something really key, and, and it's what is somebody doing outside of treatment? So is this also when, as a provider, as a clinical director, you're providing the treatment, but then you're also giving the patient some other sort of support outside of treatment? Do you see that as also being important to keep track to know what's going to work in the long term? hundred percent, hundred percent patient accountability. It's not just what we do in the office. It's what we do outside the office. And I think this applies to every aspect of healthcare. I think insurance companies are trying to pick up on this with their wellness plans. If anybody has, you know, commercial insurance, what do you see on these apps? You know, hit your, your fitness goals and you get these little rewards and credits and this, this and that. And it's incentivizing you to stay active, get active. So collectively, I think we understand the benefit of this, but I think internally, um, looking at it from a microscopic level, the more our clinicians, providers, our, our, our team members, uh, you know, encourage and incentivize the accountability of the patient outside the office, it does bode well for a better response overall. And even, you know, we can call it a placebo effect, but I've always told patients and, and my colleagues and peers, what's wrong with a placebo effect? Mm. If you feel better from something that's placebo, it's okay. You're getting some benefit somehow, right? So I think, I think in, in conjunction with what we do as as providers and as clinicians um, with with our patients, it's this mutual understanding that look, I'm not going to see you 24 hours out of the day, and there is this accountability that's driven by some of the data that we see. So if we tell patients, hey, look, here's 50 patients we studied, here's them doing TMS or ketamine, and here's them increasing their step goal per day, here's them increasing their quality of sleep on average per night. Um, I, you know, mentioned this before with you guys, you know, we gave our patients these little smartwatch fitness trackers and trust me, there weren't Apple watches cause we couldn't afford that. But on Amazon or, or wherever you can get these $30, $40 little fitness trackers and they're not medical devices, but they give you an idea of what the patient's doing. So we were able to track some of our patients' progress and kind of connect the dots. And we would look at the graph of their averages of steps per day during the week where their pH or depression scores are dropping the most and make that connection, right? So that to me was kind of using the data in real time, the research in real time, putting it in front of the patient saying, hey, look, this is you. You hit these steps, step goals. You were getting this quality sleep. This is how you were feeling while you're in treatment. It, 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 it drives back the idea that we're doing something, you know, much more than just 
conventional medicine. And this applies to other specialties too. A cardiologist will tell their heart patient, if you have hypertension, you don't just go home and take the metaprolol or, or the beta blockers and call it a day, right? Or whatever you're taking. It's, 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 it's the diet. What's the number one thing that we tell patients in hypertension that are diagnosed with hypertension? What's the first rule of prevention? Diet and exercise. Mm-hmm. It's not a pill. And I think we have to apply that and shift that cultural attitude in mental health as well. There's a great book called Rain Energy by Dr. Chris Palmer. talks about the metabolic connection with our brain and how we feel and, and what we put in our body. And it's extremely important as well. So on that, on, that, on that note, with the specific data points that you're looking at, from your experience, for somebody that's listening right now, maybe they're not tracking it yet, what would you recommend uh, a professional should look into to track the actual patient progress and success? So I think, you know, every, every patient's different, obviously, especially in mental health, because the limitations are very different too. Uh, somebody with primary medical conditions, such as, you know, heart issues, or, or, or we're talking about, you know, the, the most common things we see in the U.S. in terms of diagnoses, hypertension, high cholesterol, right? Uh, talking about the obvious here, you know, it's different for telling that patient, hey, look, you got to change your diet and exercise. But with a patient who's got a mental health disorder, for them to go out and motivate themselves to go out and go for a walk or go out and, and, and get active or pick up an old hobby, it's very, it's a very, uh, it's not as easy as I would say. So uh, to answer your question, I think you have to cater it specifically to the patient and find out where that patient can benefit from in terms of increasing a certain activity. And that's where we talk about this consultation experience, right? I think we've worked on this together quite some time now. And from my experience, that initial conversation with the patient is not just an extraction of information for the provider, but it's also to provide the patient with resources and 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 value-based content. And during that conversation, you can learn more about the patient. Is the patient um, somebody who loves to play the guitar? You know, getting get into the nitty gritty, and and or somebody who was a, you know an avid collector of, of of baseball cards as a hobby of theirs that gave them joy. So. I'm not, I'm just talking in the physical sense. I'm also talking in the neurological sense of, of giving somebody that, 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 that feeling of joy, that feeling of, of, of gratitude, that feeling of, of gratification, essentially. Well, you know, let's touch on the word gratification for a second. When we talk about gratification, we're talking about increasing dopamine. We want to feel rewarded. So we want to understand what people can do on their own time to create that organic, natural level of gratification, because it's a big part of that mental health response. Very specific to look at each candidate very individually. And what you're pointing to is being able to have a patient journey that is so tailored that you can actually communicate with each patient to understand who they are. We, right. uh, we have another episode that um, specifically focuses on best practices for, for a clinic. And it sounds like this ties directly with that because if you're speaking with a brand new patient and you end the conversation and you don't know what actually gets that person moving forward, Usually, right. well, it's a big opportunity for you to be able to support that patient in moving forward and for you as a professional to be able to track the necessary steps to actually support them in getting better. Right. 100%. With, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You were saying. Would you be able to share from your experience maybe an anecdote or how tracking somebody's data specifically made an impact as to how the treatment went to help them get better over time? Yeah, Absolutely. You know, in depression and anxiety, we do we use something called right PHQ-9s or Patient Health Questionnaire nines, and your Generalized Anxiety Disorder seven questionnaires. There are two measures or two scales or two question forms that patients fill out, 
and the severity of your depression can be as high as 27 on the PHQ-9 and for anxiety as high as 21. And what we would do is we would actually plug in those values into a graph. So we would plug in the date and the score the patient has. And, and it's such a profound experience because we're, you know, to print this out at the end and show it to the patient, it's like their report card. To me, that was one of the coolest things ever. And and we we were able to kind of really highlight some of the 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 flows the patient was having during their course of treatment. And and to give you an example specifically, you know, we had a patient. We're talking, uh, you know, forty year old male, debilitating depression, anxiety, you know, social anxiety, generalized anxiety, severe depression, anhedonia, you know, uh, lack of interest or pleasure in doing things to the max concentration was an issue, couldn't hold a job, had a three-year-old son, you know, living with his mom, mom's, you know, at, 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 in her, in her seventies at this point. So there's a lot happening in this family. And you definitely fell for the guy because he was trying his best. We did two rounds of TMS in this patient. And the reason I did two rounds is because he had a great partial response the first round. So when we plug in these points on this graph, we can see this patient having a significant response to treatment, but because certain people require a higher dose of certain medications, if you will. Our understanding with this patient was, let's go ahead and try this for a second round, which insurance did cover at, after a certain duration of time because there was a response during the first course of treatment. But the patient was able to see in that first half of TMS, or that first course, their depression scores go from a 27 down to a 20, up to a 22, down to an 18, up to a 20, down to a 16. So it wasn't like, you know, we did a couple of treatments and boom, we're 27 down to a one. No, there's a there's a progression here. And naturally, what I would show the patient is, hey, what happened on December 18th? Look at your score going from an 18 to a 22. Oh, yeah, that's when I had to go, to go for that job interview. Yeah, I see your depression score and anxiety score kind of spiked up a little bit. So when I show these graphs to these patients... And you see your graph starting at in the higher the number, the worse are the symptoms, right? Or, 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 or the more severe the symptoms. When the patients see the graph start to drop and there's a little fluctuations, I point to the fluctuations and I say, that's life. That's life throwing curveballs at you. We're trying to stay and walk along this, uh, this stable line of feeling good, feeling consistent, feeling happy, being able to control our thoughts, redirect our thoughts. And instead, what ends up happening is these curveballs kind of throw us off that stability of that line. So patient was able to visualize that. That was powerful. I mean, I think about myself as I go throughout my day and I'm tracking. Um, so I have a practice every week. I track my performance in a couple different areas. And if I, as I go back and I look at how I'm doing throughout the month and throughout the year, I mean, me, I'm, I'm very visual. So like I'm putting myself in the shoes of the individual you were just mentioning that as I see that line go down, it's like, yes, that is yeah. a huge accomplishment. Yeah, And then when it goes up, oh, it's life. Okay. Nothing wrong with me. It's just life being life. And now I can continue to progress for the long term. Well, you're, you're human, right? And, and we, and, and circling back to what you, what you're looking at that, you know, especially with somebody like yourself who focuses on high performance coaching as well. If you think about it, there's this expectation we, we subconsciously embed in our brains that this is how we should be. This is how we should do. Uh, because we tried this, our our results should be 100% every time. And I had to tell this patient, you know, look, you're trying. We're seeing something move. Something is something is shaking. Something is moving. Something is happening. Because even he was noticing that, hey, I'm not relying on my anxiety meds as much this, during this time. That was profound too. The patient was able to say, hey, during this week, I could see this graph. I didn't really take my anxiety meds, but look at my scores. Remember, 
The highest score you can have on the anxiety score was a 21. The highest on the depression score is 27. During the After the first course of treatment, he was down to, I believe, a 12 for depression, around 12 or 13, and a 15 for anxiety. So a six-point reduction in anxiety, but a response for depression, which is a 50% reduction or more. So we knew we were somewhere. We did a couple of maintenance sessions, but here's what we did. We followed up with a patient. So every month for four months, I would meet with him for a half hour, 40 minutes, just chop it up. What's going on? How are you doing? What's changing? Are you interviewing? How's your son? Do the measures, plug in the, you know, the graphs, uh, plug in the points in the graphs to see where his depression scores look like. And you can see that during the course of those four month follow-ups, there were some fluctuations, but he was still in that, you know, symptomatic stage and his depression score shot back up to like an 18. So, you know, even though he was down to get down to a 12 or 13, it was back up to an 18, which is still significant enough to ha- debilitate somebody from a functioning capacity. So we introduced a second round, but this time we focus on a lot of specifics that really impacted the patient's treatment. And I'll tell you why the patient's depression score shot up a few points. During the third follow-up, he wanted to be with some friends and he had a beer. And that beer led to having a joint. Mm. Now, I, you know, we're all adults here. We know what the real world's like, right? Everyone likes to have fun. I get it. Pick and choose your battles. That's what I told him. Because this person, this patient is very, very reactive to anything that's very depressant. And during his initial evaluation, the one thing he said was his marijuana use really impacted his mental health. He was aware of that. Because he was feeling so good and because his graph looked a lot better from where where it was before, he felt, you know, I can do a little bit of this. And clearly the answer was no. It kind of gave his brain the, the the usage of these substances. It gave his brain that muscle memory of being depressed and kind of tapped into it. I always tell patients, if you get better with the treatment, uh, no matter what it is, and you were a depression patient, you're not as depressed anymore. It doesn't mean that you are, you know, somebody who is going to benefit from treatment, you know, just because you, you, you've, you've had this response, there is still that muscle memory or that file or that, Mm -hmm. that memory bank sitting there and saying, Hey, remember me, I'm depression. I'm still here. And then we do a second round. And that's when we really see some significant progress in this patient. And that was one of the coolest things ever. I can say firsthand, it, it just blew my mind when doing a second course, changing some of those habits, going on job interviews, taking accountability for your son, you know, it, it, and, and taking care of him more often, adding that responsibility to his plate, even though it stressed him out. I mean, he would be in our waiting room, leg shaking, jittery, sweating, because he's like, I don't know if I'm going to get better. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. And it became this, you know, repetition. So for him, using the graphs, using his metrics, using his data, it was one of the reasons we were able to really incentivize this patient. And that's where the data came in handy. Extremely important. Mm, you make me think of in business, there's nothing more dangerous than being successful or succeeding at something and not knowing why. And yeah. as this individual, as you're pointing to, now he knew, okay, maybe if I did drink a beer and smoke a joint, now I know what's not working for me. Now I know yeah. that if I come across this again, and this is again, where now the the ongoing support that you guys provide and the therapy and the, and the coaching and everything that they do. And when next time that comes around, now he's in the place of choosing, but now he has that, vis- that, that physically visible thing that, oh, if I do hit this joint, if I do drink this beer, now it's going to go back up. And I don't want that thing to go back up. I want to continue going down. Did it go down? Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, acknowledging what you shouldn't, shouldn't do, right? It also ties into people who you're around. 
Um, I think we've all had this part of our life at some point, you know, the ex that we shouldn't go back to. And that's something that he, he talked about. I was like, because he came in, he's like, hey, man, my ex reached out to me and she, you know, he, she sees that I'm doing better, but I'm thinking about talking to her again. And I was like, did you guys have a good relationship? And he's like, yeah, you know, but she was just a little aggressive and kind of made me feel bad about myself. And I'm like, oh, this doesn't sound like the best situation. Because again, you know, your environment is conducive to to how you feel. There's an impression that's created with what your environment is. I always told patients this, that, you know, you can you can uh, avoid the bad habits, but you should also make sure that what you're ex- exposing yourself to can also avoid some of those bad habits. And 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 the people you're around, you know, it's it's uh, as you know, as moms always say, you know, the the, the that's you know that's a bad friend circle. Don't be around those kids. You know, don't hang out with those kids. Well, and and there's some truth to some of that because, you know, as we as we age, as we grow older, we start to pick and choose who we put ourselves around. If you notice, one of the things about personal growth that I've realized is who I put myself in front of. I choose to be around some people and, I, and there's some people that I choose not to. I had to go to a wedding recently and there was somebody I saw and I'm like, nope, that person's mm-hmm. all bad apples. I don't want to be around that person, right? So that plays a big role in it too. And this is using that 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 metric of, of, of data that we have with some with some patients. There, were one, there was one young lady who had a very, how do I say this, verbally abusive relationship. And first course of TMS did amazing. Do the follow-ups, her scores are going back up. No identifiable reason as to why her scores are going back up. I can't, I, for the life of me, I'm like, what's going on here? Everything else clicks. She's doing everything she's supposed to. She's in counseling. She's taking a low-dose medication. She had a great response to TMS, being a great mom. Turns out, you know, in the waiting room, I hear her uh, sniffing and other just being a complete jerk. And I'm like, oh, that explains everything. You know, so it, it, it goes back to picking and choosing your battles and, as well as picking and choosing who you expose yourself to. And I showed her her graph. I'm like, look, this is your graph. This is how you got back with your ex, right? This is what happened. I don't want to be a relationship counselor, but I'm going to point out the obvious here. Nothing wrong. Yeah. So in a situation like that, you make me think of something uh, that intrigues me. What kind of um, what kind of barriers or challenges do you see that exist when it comes to tracking this data that you that could support you in improving patient outcomes? I think we have to remember that you know it's it's not just I don't want to say the word barriers per se, but I think they become these little roadblocks that 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 we have to just kind of get over, um, and they usually are you know the patient's not giving us the full scope of what's going on personally speaking. A lot of times, you know, and, 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 and this is a good question, Sebastian, because the truth is there's a multitude of different obstacles that we can face, but the most common that I, I think I've seen on my end are, you know, patients being fully open and, and truthful about what they're dealing with because they feel so embarrassed or ashamed that they were able to do so well. And now they're like, I don't want dis- to, and that happened to in certain situations, patients like, well, I don't want to disappoint you, disappoint me, you know, it's like. I'm here to help you, but I get it because they did so well with me that there's this feeling of shame or embarrassment. So that becomes a bit of a barrier, if you will. And then I think, you know, as much as I love listening to family members and 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 getting that collateral from family and friends, because a patient gets better, we always think, oh, we fixed the problem, so everything should be fine now. Families, families sometimes think that's that's how it works. And not all, but some um do have that understanding that, oh, because the treatment was done, the patient their family member had a response that they should go back to their normal selves. And I always have to remind patients, this is a marathon. And this is where the data speaks 
that exact sentiment. Look at the graph. It's not like a four-week analysis we're doing. These graphs end up being six to eight months of measures we've plugged in. So I tell patients, this is a marathon. This is not a race. I tell a family, this is a marathon. It's not a race. So to the barriers, I think, you know, as you mentioned, the answer one, patients being fully open because of them being embarrassed or ashamed. And number two, I think expectations of, of, of family members and, and looking at this as a process that requires, you know, nurturing, requires healing. And, and we should look at that macroscopically. You know, we want those quick results too, but I understand that, you know, we have to be patient and, and, and we, have to, we, we, have to, we have to encourage that and we have to engage the patient. We have to empower them. And that requires the whole support team, not just the clinic. That's the friends, the family. I actually would have the family and friends come in, significant others come into the follow-ups, the consults, because A, you're getting a lot of information, but A, you're putting them on notice too. Hey, I need you to do your part. You know, that's a big part of it. That sense of accountability as a family, as a friend, yeah. to be able to work together. You know, it's funny because as humans, we're so we're so uh, quick to go to the microwave mentality where something we do something once and we're expecting the long-term results, where in all reality, I mean, we all know that something that's <laughs> going to be worthwhile takes time to build. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. With, with the, the tracking of data and specifically in the psychedelic assisted space that's growing and emerging, how do you envision the tracking of this information in the long-term impacting the industry? I, I do think that we're certain we're at a certain cusp in, 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 in healthcare and mental health with the, you know, data of, of, of psychedelics and where we're going. But I think what we're going to need a bit more is, is, you know, look at the, look at the, Look at the analysis of what these clinical trials, these observational studies, what they're telling us. I think one thing that I, I think the, the psychedelic industry is noticing more and more is that, you know, there's subjective experiences that can occur with psychedelics. And what, what, what I mean by that is not everybody can have a great experience with psychedelics because A, what we're seeing is the, the availability of psychedelic treatment or neuromodulatory treatment is now becoming something that's more at home. So... Some of the data to me isn't necessarily speaking uh, or, or reflective of the right picture. Uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, at-home ketamine, I'm not against it, right? But at the same time, there's not a lot of supervision or regulation of some of these at-home treatments. So a company can say, well, our at-home ketamine treatments are showing these response rates or these, this type of efficacy. And that might not necessarily reflect really well on what ketamine can really do when it's done IV in a clinic with integrated counseling or psychotherapy, right? So that's extremely important in terms of subjective experience. And then, you know, as, as far as envisioning the data, I think we have to have this integrative follow-up uh, uh, a process. I think we're looking at the data very short term and we should look at durability because the treatments that are done with ketamine specifically, we're talking about six, seven weeks at most, whether it's intramuscular or, or IV or even spravato, right, nasal. So what what are the metrics telling us from a long-term perspective? We have to look at that and we have to get more of an objective perspective. And let's not forget that, you know, these personal experiences um, that, that we're talking about, these are psychological transformations, right? Personal growth is taking place. So think about how often somebody wants to fill back, uh, fill out feedback or customer surveys after buying something or doing something, you know, really feel like, you know, the, 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 the onus on patients isn't necessarily there. So I think what we have to do is, is get better at looking at the data, what it's telling us objectively, look at some of the ethical considerations around the research, the access, what type of treatment delivery, the safety, is it supervised? 
you know, what are what are some of the societal impacts that are taking place in terms of what the data is telling us, in terms of public opinion, legislative development. And, and I think all of this kind of, you know, ties into how we should envision the data. Because again, there's a lot of it, but we have to understand what it's telling us. It's not just one clear-cut picture. It's a very, uh, uh, it's a macroscopic view, but there is a microscopic understanding in each in each form. Mm, mm, so powerful. And again, being the pioneers in the space for everybody listening, if we're going to be going down this road, we all got to pull together, come as a cohesion. I mean, the importance of tracking when it comes to patient outcomes, being able to give a provider evidence-based decision-making to support the, uh, that the patient, take a look at a personalized treatment approach that what helped supported me may not support the other person. That's okay because we're all so different. Yeah. So I feel like we're just scratching the surface on so many of these key topics. Dr. Curran, thank you for the time. Of on the importance of tracking uh, patient outcomes and be, making sure that this data is being used effectively to improve overall success. Appreciate 100%. It. Thank you, Sebastian. Appreciate being here.